0: Do you want a science podcast? No. What about a comedy science podcast? Oh, yeah. Then join us at Petri Dish. I'm Sean, a PhD and cancer researcher. And I'm Nathan, his trusty sidekick and common man slash biological brother. Together, we dive into the latest, hottest topics with a Reverend Gusto. Cannabinoids, climate change, human sexuality. Listen weekly everywhere podcasts are available to Petri Dish. Hello Microbial Nation and welcome back to another episode of the Micro moment that show that brings you down to the microbial level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host John and today I'm here with Dr. Devlin. She is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School whose lab is involved with microbiome research with the goal of understanding and controlling the chemistry of human-associated bacteria to uncover how the microbiome affects people. Thank you for coming on to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes. So I am originally from Mystic, Connecticut on the Connecticut seashore. Um, I grew up in New England. I went to college in, in Boston and then went out to Stanford to get a PhD in chemistry And then I did a postdoc at the University of California, San Francisco, uh, where I switched fields from chemistry over to more biology and human microbiome research. Then I went on the job market and then started my own lab at Harvard Medical School back in 2016. So since then, I've been running a research lab at Harvard Medical School. And as we'll talk about, I study human gut microbes.
0: So that kind of leads me into my first question. Like, how did you end up working with bacteria? Because I, I saw that you had a background in chemistry. Like, was microbiology something you were always interested in? Or did you become interested in the field when you were going for your postdoc?
1: Right. So I there's this famous joke about chemists. There are chemists who like to make drugs or chemists who like to blow things up. In other words, <laughs> there are chemists who are drawn toward biology and chemists who are drawn more toward the physical sciences, I was always drawn toward biology, but I was really interested in in organic chemistry for the uh, earlier part of my training that was in undergrad. And then my PhD, I was pretty hardcore synthetic organic chemist. I did total synthesis and methodology development, which basically means um, figuring out new ways to make bonds between atoms and make new carbon containing molecules. But toward the end of my PhD, I really realized that I was making molecules that were natural products. These are molecules that are complex molecules that are found in nature. I was actually studying and trying to make complex molecule um, that is the poison of the Colombian poison dart frog um, if you've ever seen that I love Indiana Jones, if you've seen that scene from one of the Indiana Jones movies where he's getting chased by basically the native population and they're blowing darts at him and he's running toward the river, right. that's you know the, the those darts are tipped with the poison of these of these Colombian frogs. So I was trying to make the toxin in those frogs. So again, I've always been engaged in in biology, but at the end of my PhD, I really wanted to actually do biology instead of just sort of handing my molecules off to biologists to test. And going back to the microbes, I was interested in different types of my of biology, but I was fascinated by the fact that bacteria could make molecules. We as chemists spend all this time in the lab doing reactions to make complex molecules. Bacteria do it in a snap. they They have enzymes that that do this. So I was there these molecule makers, and I was fascinated by that. I also was fascinated by the idea that from a research point of view, scientists could now modify the DNA of microbes and then change their function and I physically wanted to do that I wanted to have the experience of modifying the DNA of a of a single celled microbe and then having that change the function of that bug and and its ability to make different molecules so when I was looking for a postdoc lab I wanted it was it was a long search. I interviewed with a, with a bunch of different labs. I actually, at one point thought, oh my gosh, I'm never going to find a good postdoc mentor, but I found uh, a good fit for myself in, in Michael Fishbach's lab. Michael Fishbach was one of the early people in the field of microbiome research and one of the few trained chemists in the field at the time. And he respected my background in, in chemistry. He had a, also a background in chemistry. Um, But he also we talked and he was going to allow and enable me to actually do the biology um, in my postdoc. There are some uh, labs where if you came in as an organic chemist, you'd be uh, a derogatory term, sort of like a molecule maker or or you just all you do is you make molecules and hand them off to other people. And I didn't want to do that. I actually physically wanted to do the biology. And Michael and I talked and and he was very supportive of, of me doing the actual biology. So that's how I ended up in his lab. He was doing microbiome research, and that's how I got into it.
0: So I did touch upon this during our intro, but could you tell us a little bit more about your lab?
1: Right. So uh, we are a diverse lab of different types of scientists and people. We study the chemistry of human gut bacteria. These are the trillions of microbes that live in our guts. Um, I like the statistic that if you actually took the mass or the weight of all the microbes in our gut it would it would be pounds pounds and kilo, actually kilogram scale of of bacteria so when you think about it like that these bacteria are like another organ that we have in our bodies that and we don't understand it very well and one of the things that my lab tries to do is think about how microbes are affecting the host and i'm at a medical school our eventual goal is to make discoveries about these bacteria that lead to different treatments for human disease or ways to improve human health. And we think about things from a chemical point of view, not surprisingly, sort of joining my background in chemistry with microbiology. And we do, from a practical point of view, we are doing different types of science. We're pretty interdisciplinary. We are doing analytical chemistry. We're looking at uh, using things like mass spectrometry, and chromatography to both separate the molecules bacteria make and then identify them uh, using these mass spec instruments. We are doing a bit of organic chemistry. We'll talk about this maybe in a minute. Where we're actually making um, small molecule probes to target bacteria, and or we're making uh, we're physically having to synthesize the molecules they make to or intermediates along the on, along the way. We also do molecular biology um, and and cell biology, microbiology, of course, we're growing these bacteria. I think one cool thing about gut bacteria is we actually have to work inside of a bubble. Uh, This is a physical plastic bubble with arms that go in it, sort of spacesuit style, because the gut bugs we work with don't tolerate any oxygen. There's really low oxygen tension uh, in our guts. And so we, we have to grow them in an environment without oxygen. And that means this this bubble. Um, so that's an additional challenge of, of microbiome research. We do anaerobic microbiology. And then we also um, do uh, mouse work. Uh, either through a core facility at Harvard Medical School or through, we have lots of collaborations um, and we're uh, with other labs. And then we are helping to plan those mouse experiments. And then we get those mouse tissues back in lab and and, and do the analysis. So that's a broad overview of the different types of science the lab does.
0: I do like how you said you viewed our gut microbiome as an organ. I don't think I've ever heard that analogy before, but it's, it's, I really like it, especially if you look at it, it's like one of the most complex organs because of all the metabolites that are being produced. Some of them we know that we need to live, such as breaking down the different uh, complex carbohydrates or making vitamins, or now we're learning like that serotonin is being produced and how is that affecting our uh, s- central nervous system. Right. And even more of like bilass is what we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But yeah, I really like that analogy.
1: Yeah, I can't claim credit for that. I don't know where I heard it first, but I also like it. I completely, you know agree complex metabolites, also many many different types strains of bacteria that are in this organ. Um, and I think th- I also like it because it's a way of impressing upon people in, in a way that's maybe that connects for them that this is really important. We have a liver and if we didn't understand how the liver worked, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> right. So uh, so I think that, that that's a, another way of thinking about the microbiome.
0: So I think your lab is really interesting because you're looking at bacterial metabolites in human health. What metabolites are you specifically looking at?
1: I'll answer this in two ways. Right now, and, and so my lab has been in existence for six years, we're looking at how bacteria metabolize or, or chemically convert, I should say, host-produced molecules. So these are molecules that the human host or sometimes the rodent or mouse host makes then the bacteria have enzymes that that chemically transform these into new molecules and we're looking at those. so what are some some examples things like steroids and sterols so steroids could be things like uh, sex hormones, they could be stress hormones, they could also sterols or things like cholesterol that the lab has been studying uh, more recently so the host, Makes cholesterol from scratch, and we also have it in our diet. So that that sort of a uh, there's two different sources for that molecule. And um, we'll I think we'll get into this in a minute. But a- another category of molecules the lab is interested in um, that has a steroid core are bile acids. And so the lab has been very actively involved in studying how bacteria metabolize bile acids. These bile acids are molecules. Actually, they're derived from cholesterol in the host liver the host takes cholesterol and with host enzymes converts it to these bile acids. They have an acid functional group on them, this, that, that bile acid term. The host then stores these molecules in the gallbladder and secretes them every time we eat a meal where they act as detergents that help to aid in digestion. So for many, many decades, bile acids were understood understood as detergents and they are in fact detergents. But then in, in the 1990s, people started to realize that bile acids Uh, look like steroids, and steroids are very selective signaling molecules, and people thought, well, could bile acids be signaling molecules too? The answer is yes. And we now understand bile acids in these two ways, as detergents and as signaling molecules that bind to host receptors and control uh, functions in the host. And these functions are pretty fundamental to, to host life. They're things like the bile acids control immune function in the host, and they also control metabolism in the host. And uh, so we'll get into this in a minute, but the lab is interested in how bacteria chemically modify these these molecules and then how those modified uh, molecules have an effect on uh, host health and disease.
0: Yeah, I actually have a little space in my heart for bile acids because uh, that was my master's research. It was how the gut microbiome modulates bile acids. And yeah, their signals for our immune system, they even self-regulate bile Bile acid production, right? Depending yes. on what's there, and I think what's also interesting is there there are signals for potential like pathogens or just microbes themselves. So I studied Vibrio cholera, and it has uh, a couple of virulence factors that are upregulate in the presence of certain bile acids. So once it reaches that part of the gut, it uses the bile acids to really kickstart, you know, toxin production and pilus formation to adhere to the intestinal lining.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that all this is fascinating. I really I love talking about bile acids. But um, going back to another one of your points, yes, the negative feedback loop is also fascinating. So that, just to describe it very briefly, what that means is that the host has a, a feedback sensing loop, so that if there's a lot of bile acid or, or even too much bile acid in the host or in the system, then Uh, more bile acid actually down regulates um, a key enzyme in the host liver that is the rate limiting enzyme for bile acid synthesis. So for all those engineers in the audience, this is basically, you know, or a negative feedback loop where more molecule leads downstream to less molecule uh, synthesis.
0: I guess like one last thing I will say about it and then we can move on is like, I also like uh, how efficient it is because your body reabsorbs something like 95% of all bile acids and recycles them to be used again.
1: Right, exactly. Um, and it is uh, the technical term is enterohepatic recirculation, but this active the body has specific transporters um, that are designed to actively reabsorb these molecules. To me, that means that these molecules are, are important for the body. It wants to recycle them to use them uh, in, for future use and future meals. So yes, the body definitely cares about these molecules.
0: Can you go into a little bit of detail of how microbes modify or metabolize bile acids?
1: Right. So we spoke a minute ago about how after a meal, the gallbladder contracts and these bile acids get dumped into the small intestine. They are, as you said, actively reabsorbed. And that 95% number is remarkable that these molecules are reabsorbed by the host. But that 5% actually passes into the colon, which is where the majority of our gut bacteria uh, reside. In That 5% number sounds small, but because bile acids are in such high concentration in the gallbladder and then in the small intestine, if you talk about 5% in the colon, that ends up being high micromolar, low millimolar levels of this molecule, which is a lot still. That 5% is still a lot in the colon. And then in, in that lower part of the GI tract, gut bacteria um, chemically transform these, these molecules. The host makes molecules that have a bile acid piece, um, and then they conjugate it or connect it to an amino acid piece. And one of the things that a wide variety of gut bacteria do is cleave off or, or cut off that amino acid. And we think, we, the scientific community, thinks um, that one of the reasons they do that, cleaving off that amino acid piece, is as to scavenge uh, that amino acid, they actually use that amino acid as a carbon or nitrogen source. So that's, they're looking for nutrients. and looking for the sources of carbon and nitrogen, and they use the bile acids in that way. These are really abundant molecules. Bacteria are bathed in them, in the gut environment. Um, so that's one thing that a wide variety of bacteria do. Um, and then different bacteria, we were talking about how complex the system is. Different bacteria have different enzymes that chemically modify these, these molecules further after this deconjugation. Most of these transformations are reductive in nature, although not all reducing means um, importing or putting electrons into these small molecules. And it is a little bit of a mystery why bacteria do this. Some of these are, from a chemical point of view, relatively subtle transformations like um, taking a ketone and reducing it to an alcohol. But what we do know is that the downstream molecules have very distinct biological effects things like secondary bile acids. So here we call secondary bile acids those that are produced by bacteria. Um, some of these molecules have uh, unique signaling properties that the host-produced molecules don't have. They bind to host receptors. Different host receptors or have different affinities for, for different host receptors. The other thing that's it's fascinating to me is that some of these molecules have beneficial effects um, and some of them have detrimental effects. So for example, we'll, we'll probably talk about this in a moment, my lab has found that there are some of these secondary bacterially produced bile acids that regulate the host immune system in a sort of anti-inflammatory way. So that could be beneficial, but others of these molecules are implicated in uh, colon cancer. Um, they've been shown in animal models um, to induce the development or uh, speed up the development of colon cancer. And they're also found in higher levels um, in colon cancer patients in in humans So things like deoxycholic acid and lithocholic acid; these secondary bile acids, we think, are cancer-causing agents in high levels. It is really important then to understand to differentiate between these different secondary bile acids. I should also say there are about fifty of these compounds, just to put a number on it. Um, there are about fifty of these of these bacterially produced molecules that we have detected in human stool and human feces, and so it is because they have different activities. One of the things that is important to do and that my lab is involved in doing is trying to figure out what these the different effects of these molecules are
0: that's a lot more than when i when i was doing my master's uh, when i found doing my master's yeah there's like all these different metabolites like some of them are attached to sulfur compounds some aren't one of my personal favorite i just like the sound of it is deoxycholic acid i think that's one of the ones that isn't uh, detrimental to human health
1: right yeah, that one. So, ursodeoxycholic acid or, or UDCA. That, uh, in my understanding, my my lab isn't studying that actively at the moment. But what I do know is that uh, UDCA is sometimes actually given in a clinical context by doctors um, to patients suffering from different types of um, liver diseases, or or where bile basically builds up um, in the liver. And it is a, an FDA-approved drug for some types of of liver disease in humans. This molecule we're talking about, UDCA, is actually a bacterial metabolite. And so I think that that's fascinating that some people don't know that you might actually be taking what is, in fact, a bacterial metabolite um, as a drug um, to treat disease. There's also this sort of fascinating one in a different context. I believe the drug is called Kybella. And it is a dermatological uh, drug. And I believe that it's essentially an injection um, that you inject it into the skin un- in your face, mm-hmm. and it is to resolve double chin. And that one is uh, deoxycholic acid or DCA. Really? Yeah, it's now a dermatological treatment for double chin. Interesting. Um, and I don't know if people know that they're injecting DCA into their into their face, or their dermatologist is when if when I get that done.
0: I never knew that. <laughs> so as a follow up, uh, I was at a conference where you spoke about discovering new bile acids that are found in the gut. How did you come about these, and how did they affect the gut microbes?
1: Right, a combination of ways. I'll talk about probably two molecules, and I fr- hope your audience will forgive me for the names. Uh, bile acid naming is—it's a mouthful. It's complicated. It was the nomenclature was sort of designed many, many decades ago, and, and we're stuck with it. Um, so one of these molecules is isoalloithicolic acid or isoallo LCA, um, and another one is is called colic acid seven sulfate or we call it CA7S for short. But the first one, isoallo LCA, that one we can't take credit for discovering that it exists in the first place. But what I would use this story to highlight is the importance of looking at older literature. So we use, as I mentioned earlier, mass spectrometry um, to detect molecules that bacteria are making, we saw essentially a new peak that that we had not seen before that some of our bacteria were making. Um, And we used the mass of this peak to hypothesize about what it could be. And we turned to the old literature and we looked at, uh, we knew it was a a derivative or had the same mass as lithocholic acid, but it didn't have the same chemical properties as lithocolic acid. And so we wondered what could this be? You know, we turned to this older literature where analytical chemists basically from sort of the 1950s through the 1980s were trying to catalog the bile acids that were in human feces. And this was this was one of them, isoallo LCA. Um, and we were actually able to buy from a specialty chemical company, this molecule and figure out that, yes, this was the mo- molecular bugs bugs were making. Um, but then nobody knew what it did. And so we collaborated with a lab that's in the Harvard Medical School Immunology Department, uh, June Hus Lab. And we were able to find that this molecule uh, affects the differentiation of naive T cells uh, into regulatory T cells. So regulatory T cells are part of the adaptive immune system that essentially tamps down uh, or tones down host immune response. So these are, functionally speaking, anti-inflammatory cells. Why would it be important for the host that iso-LLCA induces these regulatory T cells? Well, um, one of the major problems and growing problems in Western or in health right now is the rise of inflammatory bowel diseases. So things like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, IBD and IBS um, are on the rise. And it is really important for the clinical community to think about new treatments for these diseases. So it has sort of been thought um, that Tregs or regulatory T cells are some of the cells that actually can help either tamp down or ameliorate um, these sorts of inflammatory bowel diseases. So in a nutshell, what we found is bacteria um, that produce this molecule, iso-LLCA, that then um, is anti-inflammatory and has anti-inflammatory effects in vivo. And we we show this in, in mouse models. So the next step down the road would be to translate that. Um, can we show that a molecule like iso-LLCA has an effect in humans? And that hasn't been done yet, but it's exciting to, to think about that happening.
0: That's pretty cool uh, because... I'm aware that certain short-chain fatty acids that microbes produce also downregulate T-regulatory cells as well, right? So it'd be kind of interesting to see like a multifac- you know, multifactual ability to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I, I think, you know, at the end, we'll talk a little bit about where the field is going and perhaps we'll return to that point of different ways we can put molecules together. And then the other molecule I wanted to talk about in terms of discovering new bile acids was colic acid 7 sulfate or CA7S. And most of the work we do is collaborative, and that will be, that's sort of a theme of our, our research. And uh, we are collaborating with a team of bariatric surgeons over at Brigham and Women's Hospital, led by Dr. Eric Shu. And we wanted to study how the microbiome is causally uh, affecting patients after bariatric surgery. So bariatric surgery is the most effective treatment that we cur- the clinical community currently knows about for obesity and type 2 diabetes. It far outpaces any sort of uh, lifestyle or uh, other therapeutic intervention we currently know about. Um, but one of the things that's remarkable about bariatric surgery is that while weight loss takes six months to a year, many times patients are actually cured of their type 2 diabetes in the hospital. Um, meaning within hours to days after surgery, patients can stop taking their type 2 diabetes medications and are cured. So that rapid change um, has gotten clinicians curious about whether or not there could be molecules. A bio, Was there a biochemical change after surgery that could be responsible for this amelioration of type 2 diabetes or biochemical changes? Um, the other thing that we know happens after surgery is there's a large shift in the microbiome. So we started collaborating with Eric Hsu and his lab to look for molecules that were changed after bariatric surgery. Um, and we used mass spectrometry to look at molecules that were different in both mice after surgery and also in humans. And we found this molecule, colic acid 7-sulfate, that was increased in both mice and humans after surgery. And we did that by finding a new peak, uh, sort of similar to the ISO story, found a new peak using mass spec. And we actually were able to purify, to physically purify enough of this peak, enough of this molecule from mouse intestinal contents to get more analytical chemistry data on it. We did uh, NMR, nuclear magnetic uh, resonance spectroscopy. Um, The technical details are not important. Basically, we got more data. We purified enough of the compound to get more data on it to, to definitively identify what it was. And then we went on to show both in cell culture and in animal experiments um, that this molecule ameliorates type 2 diabetes. Um, you can actually make mice really? have type 2 diabetes just like you can make humans um, by feeding them a high-fat diet over a period of time. And uh, yeah, so, so we're not saying that this molecule is sort of the, the be-all end-all of bariatric surgery. There are many, many changes after bariatric surgery that happen, but this is one thing um, that we think is happening after surgery that contributes to type 2 diabetes amelioration. Yeah,
0: that's really cool. Uh, type 2 diabetes, like my understanding is it's you lose like sensitivity to insulin for type 2 diabetes, right? Or there's like a tolerance or something like that that built right. up. And so, yeah, your body is sensitized to it again. So, that's that's incredible.
1: Right. And so, we're still trying to understand the mechanism of that. Uh, What we do know right now, it returns this idea that bile acids, so CA7S is a bile acid, that they bind to host receptors. So one thing we do know that's happening in this system is that this small molecule is binding to uh, a host receptor, it called TGR5, the name doesn't really matter. um, But what this host receptor does, it controls the release of a hormone called GLP1. And this hormone then goes to the pancreas and stimulates insulin uh, production and secretion. So there is this insulin regulation that is stimulated by this small molecule.
0: This week's episode of the Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Validate your workflow with Zymobiomics Gut Microbiome Standard, an accurately quantified microbial community mimicking the human gut microbiome. Zymo's complete microbiome solutions have optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. You can find out more by visiting their website, zymoresearch.com. And one more thing I want to say is, you, you did mention peaks. So my understanding is, you load samples into for HPLC or whatever you're using, and it's based off of retention time, right? That there's a time where, Like, it will pass through, and then how, like, big the peak is and, like, how wide it is, you can determine the molecular size and how much there is. Am I correct in that understanding?
1: Yeah, that's the basic idea. So we, it's basically two instruments coupled together, as as you described. So you are passing a complex mixture of molecules through basically a a matrix, just a, a really tightly packed column of material. And the properties of that, the molecules will separate that basically the molecules will pass through the column at different rates depending on their chemical properties. So that's how you would physically separate out molecules according to their properties. And then once they're physically separated, the back end or the second half of this is a mass spectrometer. And you are essentially ionizing or putting into the gas phase as ions these different molecules that you've now separated. And this instrument, this mass spec, can read out the mass of those ions. So you get two things. The first part of the, the system gives you separation of molecules. And the second part gives you the mass of the molecules. So you can imagine as molecules are coming off the column, they're getting detected by the mass spec. And then that's happening over time. So that's why you get the retention times, the time it came off the column, you know that, and then the mass, you know that. So you get these, basically these two key pieces of information from the system, the retention time off the column and the mass and then, using that, you can um, hypothesize what the molecules are. The other thing that we do is actually get authentic standards of the molecules and run those over through the same system. And this, if you're right, and this is in fact the molecule, it ha- should have the same retention time and the same mass as as your peak in your biological setting.
0: So, another quick question: You found these. So, is it because mass spec was not as sensitive before that these weren't discovered?
1: Right. So that's an interesting question. Um, Partly, yes, that analytical chemistry of which mass spec is a part has been developing over the decades. And in fact, when I started my postdoc and was in my postdoc, we used to, the field used to uh, analyze bile acids using gas chromatography. There were even, you know, back in sort of that 2010 to 2015 that five year frame there was a development in mass spec and also in the the front end in the chromatography portion such that we could now move from using gas chromatography to using liquid chromatography to look at bile acids and then detecting them the companies are building fancier and fancier in mass spec instruments as as we go so in part yes the developments in analytical chemistry have allowed us to separate and and detect more molecules than than we could before Part of it is also just more interest in the field and and a returned interest into molecules that bacteria make, and also uh, additional chemical hypotheses that allow us to, about what bacteria are making to allow us to to look in this really messy mixture. I mean, we are shooting or injecting feces onto these instruments. It's a mess. Mm -hmm. So having (laughs) hypotheses about what's there can also help us identify uh, new metabolites as well.
0: So I know you touched upon this a little bit, but your lab also looks at steroids. And I was wondering, how do bacteria, like, what is their effect on modifying uh, steroids in the body?
1: Right. So um, one of the things that is a lesser known fact about steroids. So these are, as I mentioned before, these could be sex hormones. These could be stress hormones that the body is making, often synthesized in things like adrenal glands. Oftentimes, when we think about steroids, we think steroids get into our bloodstream. And then they are secreted in our urine. This is why for drug testing at the Olympics, we make athletes pee in a cup and we also take their blood. And actually at the, uh, the Olympics, um, or some big these big worldwide uh, sporting competitions, they have mass spec instruments. If you think about how they're drug testing athletes, those drug testers are using some of the same instruments that we actually use in the lab, these fancy mass specs. But There are actually two main ways that steroids are excreted from your body. One is through urine, but the other is through the gut and in feces. And different steroids are secreted different ways. So some of the steroids that are secreted in urine wouldn't be secreted in your gut and vice versa. Basically, what that means is that from your blood, these molecules then go to the liver. um, Some of these steroids go to your liver and then get stored in in gallbladder. And just like bile acids are secreted into into the gut and then get excreted in feces. And what we did when we got into this area of research was we looked at the old literature. And there was a time, uh, actually sort of interesting to say, but there was a time when you could do things like get 100 milliliters of bile from a pregnant woman. This is before the advent of IRB protocols, these modern protocols that protect patients and say, you can't do things like this anymore. Um, but you can, used to be able to get large amounts of bile um, from different people. And using older mass spectrometry, mass spec techniques and analytical chemistry techniques, they were able to look at what steroids were in bile. So that was really our one of our starting points from, for this project was if a steroid is found in bile, that means it's getting into the gut, that means it has gut bacteria have access to it and could be chemically transforming it. This is a much newer area of research than than bacterial metabolism of bile acids. There's a lot less that's known. There was some research done in like the late 80s and early 90s. And there was sort of this one review that we referenced that was written in like 1993. But then after that, it was really nothing for, you know, 20 years. So we are looking at how bacteria are metabolizing some of these steroids that are actually that are found in the gut. Um, and some of them are things like derivatives of cortisol. So cortisol is our, our stress hormone. Uh, mice actually have a mm-hmm. different um, version of it called corticosterone, but it's it's their version of, of the, the stress hormone and, or stress steroid. And so we have found gut bacteria that actually are converting these stress hormones into different, type, different types of, of, of steroids. This is, again, very new. Um, we don't know yet actually right now doing more of the basic biochemistry of trying to understand the enzymes that are involved and all the products that are made and and using techniques from enzymology and actually genetics in microbes to do genetic knockouts to look at some of the the genes that are encoding the enzymes responsible. But down the road in the future of the lab, uh, we think that some of these molecules, these steroids that are being chemically modified um, could be even things that are interesting like neurosteroids. There are steroids that are have been discovered that uh, signal to host receptors and affect neurological development and function. And we found that bacteria make molecules that look like that, but we don't know right now whether or not they could affect the host. and that's really exciting for us. It's the, a direction the lab is going and uh, this it, we're excited about this idea. Um, we in other labs too are excited about this idea that gut bacteria could be making molecules that affect um, host behavior.
0: That sounds like it'd be really interesting to study, especially for like early development.
1: Yes. And our collaborator, June Ha, is very active in this in this field as well. There is growing understanding or at least acknowledgement of this idea that even during pregnancy, that the gut microbiome matters during pregnancy. And June's lab and other lab have showed that in mice anyway, maternal immune activation during pregnancy coupled with a specific uh, gut bacteria results in behavioral changes in the pups and the mouse offspring. And actually, some of the the molecules um, that we're interested in are molecules that are associated with pregnancy, meaning that they're found in different levels in pregnant women than in, in non-pregnant women, and also have been implicated in um, the even things like postpartum depression. So that's where the sort of neurosteroid aspect comes in. So it's exciting early days, um, but I, I don't want to overstate here and say we know that this, this neurological control is happening. In this case, we don't, um, but that's the direction we're going or looking into with the research.
0: That would be really interesting if it does end up being that, because not only is the gut microbiome producing or is it serotonin, but potentially affecting other neurological aspects, or just mood, mental behavior, uh, and more than just, like, neurotransmitters.
1: Yeah, and, you know, an open question is, uh, we don't know where these molecules are going, meaning, like, if they get produced in the gut, are they getting back into the bloodstream, are they crossing the blood-brain barrier? These are all open questions that we're interested in studying.
0: Right, I think that's something that at least a lot of media doesn't necessarily say it's like, yeah, they're producing serotonin, but is it getting back to the central nervous system? Is it just staying in the gut or is it going all the way back to your brain? Important questions. So not only is your lab looking at how bacteria metabolize compounds made by the body, but you're also looking at how to control bacteria metabolizing them. What compounds has the lab developed or discovered and how do they work?
1: Right. So this area of our research actually goes back to my roots Bit in organic chemistry. We study, as we've been talking about, the chemical modifications that bacteria do to molecules, and they do these chemical modifications with enzymes. Well, the microbiome field is relatively new, but for a while now, chemists have been making small molecule probes or small molecule inhibitors that target enzymes. And so we are using that strategy. One example would be. Uh, Kinases. Kinases are really important in initiation and and progression of cancers. Um, And so, chemical biologists have been developing inhibitors, selective inhibitors of kinases. And uh, we actually drew from that kinase inhibition literature um, to target a set of bacterial enzymes called bile salt hydrolases. So, these are the enzymes I was speaking about earlier that cleave off this amino acid and allow bacteria to harvest uh, the amino acid off of the bile acid that that the host makes. Uh, These bile salt hydrolases are really widespread, meaning a whole different variety of gut bacteria have them. And they are the gateway enzyme for all downstream bile acid metabolism um, by gut bacteria. This bile salt hydrolase has to act first before any of the downstream bacterial enzymes can act second. So we... Hypothesized that if we could inhibit this first step, this hydrolase step, um, then we would prevent those downstream reactions. And we could actually, if we could do this in vivo, let's say for starters in a mouse, then we could actually shift the bile acid pool in the mouse by specifically targeting this enzyme uh, in gut bacteria. And w- the way we did this was making a small molecule inhibitor. So this is a, a molecule that essentially we designed to bind in the active site of a whole bunch of different uh, versions of this bacterial bile hydrolase. And by binding in the active site, it prevents the reaction from happening. And it does so in a covalent way, which basically means a permanent way. It forms a permanent bond with the enzyme in the active site of the enzyme, preventing that enzyme from turning over any substrate or essentially doing, doing its reaction. And this is chemical biology. I mean, this is really you know the field Um, that I'm in, in a broader sense, I'm a, you know, in the microbiome field, but I'm a chemical biologist in the microbiome field. Um, One of the things that chemical biologists do is develop these small molecule tools to probe biological systems.
0: That's really cool. Like, yeah, this gene actually was part of my, my master's as well, the biosod hydrolase. And you have to cleave that amino acid for other microbes to intake the bile acid to do further downstream metabolism for it. For yeah, it's really important. So, one of the compounds is what AAA ten, yes. I believe. Triple
1: ten. Yeah. So, um, we were not great with our. We, this is uh, we've developed a first generation inhibitor, and the aaa ten is the second generation inhibitor we weren't great with our naming and then we sort of got our act together so aaa are the initials of the postdoc in my lab who made the molecule so Ari ad hakari is the person who made this molecule so aaa are his initials and then 10 it was the 10th molecule in this series that we that he synthesized
0: i like it it's simple enough <laughs> it's not too complex so this next question i want to dive into it it might be a little sp- specific but it's something i came upon in my masters so a lot of bacteria create biosol hydrolase, but they, uh, they vary a little bit in their amino acid complex and there was a paper I found that by Song et al in 2019 which they kind of developed different phylotypes of biosolid hydrolase. and in, in essence like these different phylotypes have different deconjugating affinities to the different bile acids. So does AAA10 affect broadly biosoled hydrolase or does it affect specific phylotypes?
1: Right, excellent question. And I'm I'm very impressed that you found this paper. We use this paper often, uh, this SONG 2019 paper as a reference in, in the lab. So I guess I'll answer this question in a couple ways. The first is that we, at the outside of this project, started out with a challenge, which was we wanted a broad spectrum inhibitor. We wanted an inhibitor that targeted as you said, that did target a wide variety of bile cell hydrolases. And the reason was um, because we wanted this inhibitor to work in vivo in a mouse. And if we had an inhibitor that only targeted a few enzymes, you could imagine if you gave that to an animal, okay, you've, you've inhibited a few enzymes, but what if they're really strong other enzymes that we haven't inhibited, they would just do their job, deconjugate all bile acids. And then we you would basically lose the effect of our inhibitor. Mm -hmm. So we wanted a broad spectrum inhibitor, it is actually a little bit antithetical to the development of inhibitors for many people to think about something as broad spectrum. So for example, in like the kinase world, I mentioned earlier, oftentimes you want your inhibitor to be as selective as possible. You want it to target only one kinase and maybe even only one subtype of that kinase in a very specific way. You don't want it to target other kinases, and that's your challenge as a chemist or a chemical biologist. Here, we're doing the exact opposite. We want our inhibitor to target a wide variety of gram-negatives gram positives. And as the microbe fans and the audience will know, I mean, bacteria are incredibly diverse. So this is actually a really big challenge to make a molecule that targets so many different types of this enzyme. The good news, what we took advantage of is that even though if you look at the entire amino acid sequence of of cell hydrolysis that we know about across the microbiome, sometimes they might only be 20 to 25% identical with each other, but that can serve 20% is in the active site. That active site is highly conserved, and that's where our small molecule binds. So we, we're trying to say, okay, the rest of the enzyme might be different, but if that active site is conserved um, and there are key residues, key amino acids within that active site that are conserved, maybe we can design a molecule that, that targets many of them. We have mostly succeeded in doing that. AAA 10, we, when we test it, it inhibits most of the B- BSHs that, that we can get our hands on to test. One of my favorite assays that we do in the lab is actually a fecal slurry assay. So how could you get your hands on as many biosol hydrolases as possible? You could order individual strains of bacteria and grow them up, but even that doesn't capture the variety of bacteria that are in the gut. So what we do is we take fresh mouse feces, we resuspend it in anaerobic water, essentially or buffered water. And that just immediately resuspends or captures all of the enzymes that the mouse just pooped out. And then by resuspending them in water, um, we can then test their enzymatic activity and then inhibition of enzymatic activity with our molecule. So we were very happy. It was a good day in the lab when we tested AAA10 against this resuspended fecal matter, and it inhibited the activity in that fecal matter sort of across the board. So what I will say is that we are develop, starting to develop a third-generation inhibitor that is even broader spectrum than AAA10 is. We have found there are some bacteria that aren't as well inhibited um, mm-hmm. by AAA10, and we're tr- it's actually an open question in the lab right now why that is. What is it about the active site or other characteristics maybe about these bacteria that make them less sensitive to AAA10? And can we use that information to develop a better inhibitor? Another thing we're thinking about is using a cocktail of inhibitors in vivo. So maybe instead of giving just AAA10, we gave several molecules um, that inhibited BSHs more across the board.
0: Uh, Just a quick point to our listeners. You you did say like sometimes it was only about a Twenty percent identity between these enzymes, and I know for for me, like it it was a little confusing at first because a lot of times you have to go to a database to look at different proteins and some of the sequences I was putting in for we had a you know a defined community in our lab, but it wasn't coming up as biosol hydrolase. Sometimes it was more broader. I think it was like what penicillinase five.
1: Yeah, penicillin five amidase is another closely related class of enzymes.
0: Yeah, so it, it does make it a little difficult, especially like how well the the database is. Is like, is this the same enzyme?
1: Absolutely, and that's that's a really good point, and that's something we continue to struggle with to t- try to tackle on on a daily basis. It's an important point to think about. The bigger picture point there is that bioinformatics is. Awesome, but there are limitations. There, even then, there are limitations to. What, so basically, what I mean is that at a sequence level, you can use sequence similarity. Say you have a an enzyme or a BSH, and you know it's a BSH because you've tested it in lab. You've done the biochemistry to show yes, definitely, like this is a BSH. But then you use that sequence and use bioinformatics to search for other sequences that are similar to it. That sometimes leads you to another BSH, but Sometimes it would lead you, as you said, to a to a different type of hydrolase. And there's also we happen to stumble across um, a new type of BSH in Bacteroidetes, which is one of the major phyla of bacteria in the gut. And it wasn't homologous to anything. I mean, it you know it was in that twenty percent level compared to other uh, BSHs that that we knew. So there's definitely more BSH sequences out there to be discovered that we can't yet capture bioinformatically using known sequences. Um, And that's a challenge because if we want to understand these enzymes and also inhibit them, we need to know what their sequences are. We eventually need to know what their sequences are or what they're doing.
0: Right. And you can only go so far because it, it is reliant on people uploading like these sequences once they sequence them. Even then, like you only make it like a small subset, depending on what you're, look on, you're looking at. And this is, sometimes it can be like a best guess scenario with the software you're using. Yep. So where do you see the field in the next five years?
1: Oh man, this is, in many ways, this is a hard question. I mean, if I had a crystal ball, that would be great. I think I am optimistic. I think there are more and more people getting interested in the microbiome field Different types of scientists who are bringing their knowledge to bear on the field. One of the things in my sort of subfield, which is sort of studying metabolites, that I think would be helpful, we still need to discover more metabolites and their functions. Um, What are bacteria making and what are they doing? I think an area that I'm really interested in that we've talked about is how if there are metabolites that are affecting host neurological development and then behavior, the sort of so-called gut brain axis, I'm really excited about it. I know other labs are as well. Can we discover bacterial metabolites that are affecting host function or host behavior? That's an area I think will grow in the next five years. But I also think that we need to start as a field, trying to figure out which metabolites are the dominant ones or driving the, the phenotypes or driving, um, the significant changes in host function. We, my my lab included, have sort of found individual molecules that are having functions in maybe in vivo, but there's also overlapping patterns. Like certain labs have found molecules, we were even talking about it, the short chain fatty acids and this one particular bile acid, those affect T cells. Uh, other metabolites affect host intestinal barrier function. Other metabolites are affecting you know, host uh, glucose tolerance. But which one of these molecules is really driving that in the host? Because all, if all these molecules are present in the host, what is the net effect um, of those molecules? And I think doing things where we start putting molecules together or putting bacteria together to try and understand which molecules are driving um, the effects will be important. And that will be a challenge because I think in many cases it might involve even more collaborations than what we're doing uh, now, trying to bring labs together that are studying. If if my lab is studying bile acids and someone else's lab is studying short-chain fatty acids, can we bring that together maybe in an in vivo system to study how they together are affecting T cells? Maybe um, I think that's going to be a challenge from both a scientific and a collaborative point of view, but I think that would Benefit the field and also lead to uh, hopefully therapy is down the road.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, at least from the farmer aspect, for me, like I think we're getting close to at least a new product coming out in the field, which I think will reinvigorate the microbiome field, at least pharmacologically speaking, for what they call live biotherapeutics. One thing I think they also need to overcome as a side note is the engraftment issue sometimes. So what that means is, you know, you're you're taking these microbes, but are they staying in the gut, or are they just being forced out by what's in the gut?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So you bring up a, a good point, which is, what are these therapies going to look like? In my world, some of what we're doing is is small molecules, and so small molecules already exist as drugs in in other fields. <laughs> you know, right? Many of the drugs that people take in pill form are small molecules. So if we find something that either is bacterially Derived or that actually targets bacteria that's a small molecule, there's a more clear path toward FDA approval for that. The other type of therapy, therapy that we're talking about is actually living bacteria, using bacteria as probiotics or combinations of bacteria themselves as the drug, as the therapy. And uh what we're talking about is this idea that when you introduce new bacteria, new live bacteria into a host, does it actually stay there? Does it actually engraft? And even in mice, when you're trying to add a new bacterium on top of a mouse that already has an existing microbiome, that's really challenging to do. Often it doesn't work. It doesn't engraft. It doesn't, that new bacterium doesn't stay um, because there's already a flourishing gut bacterial community there and it d- can't find a niche. It can't find a home within that community to, to live and make a living and harvest enough food for for its energy. Um, so yes, yeah, these are open challenges in the field.
0: So before we finish up, is there anyone you'd like to thank?
1: Yeah, so I first and foremost want to thank my lab members. I started, as I mentioned, as an assistant professor uh, six years ago, and it's really those first six years of lab members really took a chance on me. Um, it's tough to work for an assistant professor. They don't have a track record of success. You're really you know, taking a chance to say, I'm going to do my PhD with an assistant professor and and or I'm going to do my postdoc with an assistant professor. So my first generation of postdocs and grad students are, I'm very grateful to them. All the work that I've described today, they're the people actually physically doing it in the lab. I'm sitting in my office responding to emails and and writing grants, and they're physically out there doing the work. um, And so I'm very grateful to them. The other people I'd like to thank, are my parents who, of course, for the reasons of support, I, I thank them, but also I wanted to talk about my parents for some specific reasons because they brought me to where I am today. So, in a way, I find that my career and my job is a combination of what, what my parents have done in their own careers. So my mom was a lifelong academic. She was a professor. Um, she just retired this past year, but she's a very different type of professor than than I am. She is a psychologist and she taught at a small liberal arts college, um, so taught uh, college students for, for her for career. But she has been really inspirational to me, uh, continues to be. I try and model myself after her in terms of the way I interact and then I mentor students. So in my chemistry training, I didn't have any female mentors. So I had one chemistry professor in college who was a woman. All the other professors I had were men. And then all my advisors have been men. My undergrad advisor, PhD, and, and postdoc advisor were all, all men. So I'm obviously grateful to my advisors, but it, I think it is really important to see yourself in someone, to see this is where I want to go. There's a person who looks like me who is doing this. And that was my mom. Um, she was a professor. She was mentoring students. And I remember going with her to her office when I was a, a little girl, and seeing her interact with students and mentor them and help them with their senior thesis projects, and and uh, that was has been really uh, formative for me. Uh, she was she's always upheld uh, high standards for her students and her classes have a reputation for being tough, but but she's also very well loved uh, by by her students. So so my mom has been a huge influence on me, and the other person is my dad, who was a lifelong small business owner, also retired recently, and. He, you know, sort of was not in academia, but in many ways, my job right now is more similar to my dad's, meaning small business owner. Um, so I basically am running a small business in many ways. I have a, a lab of, of nine people. I have to raise money. To support those people, um, to support our science, I have to, you know, sometimes, you know, you know, mentor those people and get them where they need to go in their careers. Sometimes there are, you know, each person is different. Each person has their own goals. Each person is motivated by different things. And th- those sorts of, you know, maintaining a budget and and budgeting for the future, those are all things that a small business owner does. And that is a lot more like my dad and what he did than than what my mom did. So, I and I like to thank both my parents because. I didn't plan it this way, but in a, in a weird way, I'm doing sort of the combination of what I saw both of them do growing up and in my own job now.
0: Where can people find out more about your lab?
1: Yeah, so the lab is on Twitter. Um, so it's at Devlin Lab, and it's a student-run Twitter account, but, but we try and maintain it and post about the latest happenings in the lab. So at Devlin Lab on Twitter, um, and then uh, the website is devlin.hms dot and we actually recently updated uh the lab website to include some new features so so yeah so those would be two things that would be great to promote
0: well thank you for coming on today i appreciate it
1: well thanks so much for having me it was i had a good time and hopefully people um, may have learned a little bit more about the microbiome
0: thank you and I, I look forward to reading more about your research well that's our episode everyone we hope you have been enjoying all the microbiome episodes we've been bringing you We will be wrapping things up in our next episode with the bomb, then off to a new topic. Be sure to keep tuned in to find out what that is. You can find us on Twitter at Microbigals, or on Facebook by searching Microbigals. Interested in learning more about microbiology? Jump over to our website to read more about the microbial world. Just visit microbigals.com. Until next time, everyone. Make sure to take care of your microbiome. Bye.